This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,542, recorded June 23rd, 2000. Since we went so far off the cliff, last time I wrote some more. A man went to a sage for counsel. Quote, I dreamed that I was swallowed whole by a dragon. And from my place therein, I heard through the dragon's ears and I saw through the dragon's eyes. What does this dream signify? And the sage replied, It is the picture of man's unknown circumstance. And the dreamer asked, But what about the part of me hearing through the dragon's ears and seeing through his eyes? And the sage replied, Being aware that that was the case indicates an awareness of man's circumstance. Life does not eat men up. Men are part of life with no conditions, exceptions, or ambiguities. Those who relax to this simple reality are loosed from an imaginary imprisonment brought on by an illusionary expulsion. Men of ordinary mind feel somehow trapped in exile, not realizing it comes from the mind feeling somehow separated from and other than all the rest of everything. The dragon has ears, the dragon has eyes, the dragon has thoughts, and they are no different than yours. Thus did the sage interpret the man's dream. One man complained of multiple little ills. A correct diagnosis would have revealed that he actually only suffered from a single large one. The problem is that the source of the single large ill is also the only means of making such diagnoses. Is this a slick setup or what? Is it not neat how the pancreas fits right into the loop of the duodenum? And how Mars stays out of Mercury's way. <laughs> Don't keep dwelling on the endless, everyday, small complaints your mind has about you and your mental condition. But rather turn your attention differently and bring into focus the one large single condition in which man lives that drives him to have the little, the small complaints. To have the many small complaints. Once a prisoner knows for sure that he will be shot tomorrow. And that there is nothing whatsoever he can do about it. He can then relax and enjoy today. Whatever today may consist of. P.S. If you find this allegory to be unnecessarily jarring then you still don't realize what's on your schedule for tomorrow. <laughs> or where you are at the present. Come on, wake up and smell the leg irons. <laughs> no more liberating aroma exists in the entire universe. Headline, this ain't your grandfather's archery we're talking here. Yeah. <laughs>
the headline. Here's the story. There is a certain curious sport in which taking careful aim assures that you will miss. One day, during a slow period, life took a long, leisurely stretch and slowly rubbed its stomach. Ah. Then suddenly said, I can't rub my own stomach. What the hell was I thinking? We ain't talking your old-time, limited view, personally centered view of enlightenment here, folks. I didn't write this down as a news item, but it just hit me. It should be one. In the form of a question, what is the one form of enlightenment that's not enlightenment? Enlightenment that's personally centered. Maybe that's why I didn't write it. Back to the written news. One guy says, when I was younger and first heard the notion proposed of there being a group of unknown people somewhere secret, secretly directing the destiny of man, I was horrified. But now sometimes, rather wistfully, I almost wish it were so. That's a weird man. Everyone is a fish in the same large ocean. No one knows the purpose or direction of the many waves and currents that carry the fish along. Although when asked, most say they do. Everyone is a fish in the same large ocean. And since none are not in the ocean, none have any ability to make an outsider's objective judgment of the affair. Although most speak as though they do continually. Everyone is a fish in the same large ocean, and only the few who are aware of it are not choking from an imaginary lack of oxygen. A fish separated from his water is a sad sight to see. A fish cannot be separated from the water. Wake up and smell the salty brine, an aroma to shock you into an awareness of where you really are. P.S. Actually, the only way that you can keep from smelling the salt water is to be hard asleep at the very bottom of the sea. One guy asked a second guy, Are you an alien from another world? The second guy replied, No. I'm from your pancreas, and you're from the brain. And the first guy said, so, even though we're different since we're in the same person, I guess we're actually pretty much the same. And if on hearing this, coalescing information brought to light, all the other guys chimed in, yeah, all pretty much the same. No, the man put together right is a unified, inseparable whole. Note. All men are put together right. Further note, this is also true of life. In his attempt to understand clearly the difference between being asleep 
and not being asleep, a monk asked the head of his monastery, quote, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quack like a, quacks like a duck, is it for sure a duck? Yes, replied the master, unless it is a chicken passing for a duck. The monk pondered this reply, then asked, So how can you tell the difference and not be fooled? And the elder replied, There is no way to protect the thing that distinguishes between ducks and chickens from being fooled. That's the nature of the thing. You have reached the critical junction where the folly of mental distinctions is able to be seen. Do you see it? Do you know what I'm talking about? One chap graces us with the following info about his current approach to that certain goal. I have turned my attention exclusively to these three matters. Feelings, not thoughts. My attention to out there, not in here. And to the question of whether I exercise any control over my life or not. The secret metaphysical truth about life that the mystics claim to seek is the same truth about life visible constantly. Just without the comment. Thus the secret aspect of life is not some aspect of life. But of the one experiencing it. Ergo don't be looking for a secret. Be looking for a secret way of looking. A boy came to his father and said. I've been thinking about something. Is the mental condition that some of us so dislike and call being asleep caused by the ordinary, though erroneous, belief that we can and do have some control over our life? And the old man sternly advised the boy to never say such a thing ever again. Unfactual facts. Number one. To live an ordinary human life, you must believe that you exercise some control over your life. To believe that you can awaken, you must believe that you exercise some control over your life. To believe that you exercise some control over your life is to be totally asleep. Unfactual fact number two. Fact number two. To be sane, you must believe that you exercise some control over your life. And to believe that you exercise some control over your life, you must perceive of there being some distinction between you and life. And to perceive of there being some distinction between you and life is to be insane. Unfactual facts are fact number three. If it were true that men have no control over their life, it could not be proved to the mind. And that human thought would always find an exculpatory explanation for whatever proof was presented. So, there. So one man settles for a personally composed poetic view of the matter. Quote, I am here at this moment. But not just for me, 
but on behalf of life. I see what I see, not through my eyes, but through the eyes of life. I live not just the life of me, but rather the life of life. At one time I did not understand this. At one time I was much confused. But now I am aware of the leg irons. I smell the salt water and I am free. I am bound only to the reality of life and thus I am free. End of poem. And finally, a certain father said to his son, I have told you everything I know that could help you, but there remains one thing that I cannot ever say to you. And as the lad was about to protest this, the elder added, but that's okay. I can't even say it to myself. What the hell do you expect me to say about this? <laughs> Got a stall, I say. Got a stall. Uh. Oh, well, right, before I get into it, okay. Uh, some things from out there in the world. And then I'll really get into this. An interview. Uh, it happened to be with a screen, a movie producer. And he also was a scriptwriter. He could have been an author, but uh, I'll go ahead with what actually occurred. And he was being interviewed. And the preface to the interview was about his, in fact, it was TV, to make it even worse. He's the producer and the head writer of some new TV show uh, having to do, you know, a cop drama. Some new one that evidently is the hot thing. So the preface to it, the interviewer uh, gave a minute or so about the great intellectual and critical acclaim that was greeting his new show. Realistic in a way, heretofore, not touched by TV and blah, blah. And here he is, and they present him as really a, a thinking man's TV producer. Someone really with a handle on the intellectual and artistic side of life, not normally found in television, yakety yak. So they introduce him. And the first thing the interviewer asked uh, was about some central character, the death sergeant or the head detective in the, at the precinct. And the interviewer says, first let me ask you, it is such a, it, it is such a change of character, uh, sergeant so-and-so, whoever it was, was so unexpected how, how did you come up with a figure of a police detective that was absolutely so unexpected, not of the norm? Here was his answer. He said, well, he said, we're trying, of course, to be as close to real life as possible. It's my whole intent and so as I was writing the first, the pilot episode concerning the characters, I went away, spent a lot of time up in a cabin, really applied myself, 
And then it hit me that almost everything that we know about police work and the kinds of men who would normally be the captain in charge of a precinct or in charge of the detective division is almost everything we know is based upon. And then he named two or three other. He said it's like what it was, New York NYPD Blue or Hill Street Blues. Everything that we know about the nature, the, the kinds of men who, who would normally be in charge of the detective division have been taken during our lifetime primarily, I believe that was what he mentioned, was NYPD, and that's the name of it, and Hill Street Blues. In case you need help getting where I'm going, I say it would be quite easy and not at all uncalled for, for someone to jump in and make an observation and say, that is ridiculous. They present the man as being an intellectual, as having artistic insight into human nature, and the first thing he says when, when he's asked about coming up with some unusual, unexpected character, he compares it, saying that he was trying to get closer to real life Whereas he realized that most of our understanding of what goes on in a policeman's life and the types of people attracted to police work are taken or limited to those previous two very popular television cop shows. And somebody can make the observation, what kind of nuttiness is this? That the man sitting there, neither he nor the interviewer seem to realize that he is trying to purporting to be talking about trying to get closer to real life, whereas he's saying that our humanities, or at least the American public's, grasp on the reality of what it is to be a policeman, the life of a policeman, needs some revision. Or it's about time to be updated because it's been limited now to these shows that have been popular over the last 10 years. Two other TV shows, not the reality of life, right? You get it? How if I was simply a social critic, or if we have one observing this, you go, Jesus Christ, what kind of idiocies? Doesn't a man hear himself? He's somebody who's trying to get closer to reality, and all he's doing is playing off his imaginary cop off of other imaginary cops. Why didn't he go and hang around a police station? Tut, tut. Watch your old acid tongue and your acid thoughts. Now, that sounds like a proper criticism, doesn't it? I mean, really. Not about television, but it sounds like a proper criticism for man's ill use of the mind. That the guy's presented by someone else, a critic, an interviewer, is having the most critically acclaimed real-life cop show with such different unexpected characters, and how did he come up with it? Did he say, well, I went and lived six months in a precinct over in the Bronx, and I found. It surprised me. I kept hearing about a man who was the head of the detective division over in Queens. I went over there, and they said, nah. And then they sent me uh, somewhere into Brooklyn, and compared to the six months I spent in those other two places, then I ran across this guy, and it turns out he had, his department had the highest arrest record and conviction. No. The man says he went off to ponder it, went off in the mountains and pondered the fact that he said the American public, of course he's talking about himself, 
that our primary understanding, our primary understanding of what it is to be in real life police work has already been solidified, established by two other TV cop shows. You know, they're all fictional. I didn't add that, but I assume you knew that. Right, rather than dismissing that, what's there to dismiss? What's the difference? What is the difference in a man who decides, maybe I should have talked about this is connected to it. You would think if somebody was going to study life, that they would study life in a non-fictional way, right? You want to study police? You're going to write a police drama, a fictional drama, a movie script, a novel? You'd go hang around cops. That is, if your intention was, I want this to be as real as possible. I want the action, I want the characters based upon the reality of what the kinds of people attracted to police work, what it does to them, how they end up after years in this. You should go out and observe police work in person. Not go home and watch movies. Go read other novels about police work. You'd just be rehashing some other person's fictionalized account. Does anybody understand it doesn't make a damn bit of difference? And do you suspect, I'm about to point it out, that I didn't bring this up to make any comment about television? People like us. Of course, everybody's doing this, not just us. But everybody's basing their life on the same thing. How about people that base their life, consider instead of writing a movie script, people believe that they're writing their own life, the script of their own life. How about people who believe that they're good Christians and Jews? Instead of basing their life on Hill Street Blues or Friends or the Seinfeld show, they're basing it on another piece of fiction, the Old and New Testament. But they would say, I am living my life by a good, solid standard. The Word of God, which is, if you're going out and playing in their yard, that's hard to argue with. How about this, though? Even if you don't claim to be anything in particular, if we leave the religious world, do you understand everybody? How about the idea of having role models and heroes? And everybody will say that they have been influenced by somebody, their father, some uncle. And, of course, you know how common it is that somebody may bypass their immediate family and say Johnny Bench was their greatest hero or Michael Jordan. Or some movie star. But what if it was real life? A man says, my father. Do you believe that that's an exception to what I was just talking about? That you're right, that you believe that you're writing the script of your life to some degree or trying to, and that you believe that you're basing it on a non-fictional character, your father or your uncle or Johnny Bench. No, you're not. You're basing it upon from your view, what goes on in your head about your father. That you're writing a fictionalized script. Anybody who listens to their thoughts is listening to fiction. Now, it can be closer. It can be like a 
they used to call them docudramas. That is, that the fiction can be based. Well, I say that, that you said that you're basing your life on your father. Now, this is, totally doesn't mean anything, but I just want to be sure that you get a good chance to see the direction in which I'm pointing. You could say for meaninglessly so, but you could say, well, that would be a little closer to a docudrama than if it was that you said that you were basing your life on the life of Jesus. Or Superman. Well, I shouldn't have said that because people take Jesus seriously. But from any sort of real view, you would be a little closer to a docudrama if you were basing it on your father than it would be if you were basing it on Jesus or Mohammed or Thomas Paine. God knows how he got in there. I get tired of using the same old... I, I've used, look at the number of times I've used Girder as an example, and not once have I ever heard from that son of a bitch. Name a card. Oh, he is? Oh. <clears throat> well, I'm not at all satisfied that all of you... I could talk about for another 30 minutes. But consider from one real val from one valid view, it is just foolishness, it's silliness, it's stupid for a man to say, for a man to accept that his view, the general view of some area, police work, the mafia, the church, what it is to be a priest. For, for a man to say, well, we get most of our information from what we've seen, our, the general information we have about what it is, the real life of a priest or the real life of a mafia don. I mean, hell, it came from the Godfather. And that movie now is what, 20 years old? So I tried to bring my characters more up to date, you know, to make them more real. That is compared to his fictional characters. I'm going to make my fictional characters compared to his fictional characters more real. And you could say, that is insanity. That is, is, I can't believe people are that stupid. Oh, sure. And you're stupid if you would say that, I can't believe they're that stupid. There is no difference in doing that than if he had gone out and moved in with a mafia family, moved in with a priest, moved in with some policemen. No difference whatsoever. I'll just leave it at that. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what I was really getting at. It's for a man to believe that he's writing his own script anyway. Now, it's really going to pick on us. How do you know what to try and do? Well, I've read about it from the likes of Buddha, from the likes of whoever ever impressed you. Buddha, in fact, said, or so-and-so, yoga so-and-so said, master so-and-so said, blah, 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 be like this, be like that, try to do this, do that. You're trying to accomplish something based upon fiction, fictionalized characters. Because even if there was a guy, if there was reality behind Buddha or Moses or Jesus, do you understand that Moses, Buddha, and Jesus are fictional characters? Not because of any conspiracy, because you thought about them. 
they could have been real enough until you thought about them. You know, so don't blame me. Don't look at me like, well, how'd this happen? You thought about them. Because if I was you and an ordinary person, then I'd shift the blame immediately. You, you, well, here we go. As you could say, well, I didn't just up and think about them. Somebody else already wrote about them. See, now we're getting somewhere if you can follow it. Except then you're supposed to go, oh, wait a minute. Somebody else wrote about him. Somebody else told me about him. Then I thought about him. Whose fault is it? Okay, I got another one. One time I was traveling with a fellow. There was incidents such as this. And we ended up sharing a motel room. Next day, next afternoon, we were going out somewhere. And so we wanted to shave. And... uh he went in the shower, and he was shaving in the shower. We are going to, and I heard a noise, and the little hand mirror he had, he dropped, and he broke it. And his complaint was, he was throwing a fit because he said he couldn't shave without a mirror. And he insisted, he wouldn't walk over the sink, he insisted he had to shave in the shower. That that was what he was used to. And he said he couldn't shave without a mirror. And through some means, perhaps... Abject ridicule. I said, well, you idiot, it's your face. What do you mean you can't shave without a mirror? So some way I shamed him. He closed the curtain, shower curtain, went back in there, and suddenly I heard hoops of joy. He said, I can do it. Nobody likes that one? Because you women don't shave. So you're going to have to try and picture it. Is that even worse than the first one? I had another one. I have mentioned this years ago. It's fairly simple, but it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's exactly why I was talking about Wednesday night and was all the news items I wrote tonight. Two people are talking. One says, did you hear about Elmer? No. You didn't know he's in intensive care. An 18-wheeler crushed the side of a car he was driving, knocked him into another lane, and he was hit head-on by a second 18-wheeler. It took him eight hours to cut him out of the car. The second guy said, my God, you know, is he alive? And he said, well, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, they said that the only thing he can find is he's got some bruises. He's down in the hospital. They've actually. And the other guy says, Is he a lucky son of a gun or what? <laughs> I mean, to be hit first into the driver's side by an 18 wheeler doing, doing the speed limit, knocked into another lane, then hit head on by a second one, and all he's got, you know, some, some bruises, maybe a concussion or something, but. Uh, is he lucky or what? <laughs> Do you realize that unless you, as you're supposed to, as you have to, to be ordinary, if you do not find a distinction, think a distinction, believe there's a distinction, feel as though there's a distinction, live as though there's a distinction between you and life, everything's either good luck or bad luck. 
And it can change instantly. Like, just because he survived it, how can you say, what a lucky guy? You think, well, wait a minute. Let's move back a minute. <laughs> if he was a lucky guy, he wouldn't have been hit to begin with. Ah, you know what I mean. I'm going to offer you one more trick, or another trick. It is down to very scarce scrapings for me to be able to say anything, much less come up with something to do. This connected with what I've been talking about. The matter of whether you exercise any control, some control over your life. I got put in words, and this is as close as I can tell you. Just take it upon yourself, try. Just as an ongoing task, approach. That you're saying to yourself, you remind yourself that right this second, I am not looking at life through my eyes. I'm here on life's behalf. This is life looking at life. It's not me. If I didn't recommend it highly, I wouldn't bring it up. Especially since it may sound so vague. You can do it. And I gave you the simplest verbal push I know with a verbal description but you can feel it I can and I can't believe after all this time because as I said some of you have got to be just way overdue I mean some of you are into your 10th or 11th month I mean your water should have broke a long time ago but you can feel it's like you open up the back of your head. It's not like I'm not looking at life. Life is looking at life. And trust me, if you, if you can find how to do it, it is not spooky. Because I don't know how to worry about you people finding something spooky. The only thing I find, if you're anywhere like me, the only thing I find spooky anymore is ordinary life. That is me being ordinary. That's spooky. Realize I'm find myself discussing something with an ordinary person. <laughs> Somebody asked me a question about me, and I ended up, you know, saying a little something, actually volunteering information. And I suddenly hear it, and that's spooky. All this other shit about people having their cars stopping in the middle of the night on deserted roads and lights over them and their radio turning on and off and their dead grandmother's voice coming out of the woods. That's, that's nothing. So, at any rate, you can feel empty, which is the whole point of, I sort of liked one if you didn't get it, that I, that maybe now make a little, sound a little more specific. Several of you chuckled when I read the one about the guy that said he used to, when he first heard about the idea that could be a secret conspiracy of people running life, that it horrified him. And now, sometimes in a wistful manner, he almost wishes it were so. Those of you who chuckled, you know why you chuckled. 
The secret metaphysical truth about life, which is another way that historically you could say that all mystics, people seeking awakening, liberation, enlightenment, another version that they would all agree to historically would be that they are seeking the truth about life. All right, the mystical truth about life, the metaphysical truth about life, the secret truth about life, that all the mystics claim to seek is the same truth that everybody sees constantly. But the secret truth is to see it without comment. That is, you see it and you're not muttering to yourself. And that's what I was trying to hint that I can get a feeling. I used to, well, I can still do it. When I, and this is not a theory, see, from my view. You just have to take it if it didn't fully strike you, which I assume it didn't at the moment. You just have to take it. I called it a, you know, a trick or a method. But it's not, it's more than that to me because I know it's true. It's all I've got to do is quit muttering. All I've got to do is do the best I know how to do. And I know that it's not me looking at life. It's not me listening at life. It's life doing it. But you can't have such an awareness and be in an ordinary state of mind. They're absolutely mutually exclusive. Because you can't be in an ordinary state of mind without feeling, without having an awareness that you are not the same as life. Nobody analyzes it. Nobody philosophizes about it. But it's simply a fact that you know that you're not the guy next to you. You know that you're not... You just know that you're not another person. You're not the other people in the world. You're not trees. You're not plants. You're you. That has to be the state of mind to be ordinary, to be sane, but it's also the state that's required to be asleep. And I had a guy propose in a news time tonight that that's all that being asleep is. That's the beginning and end of it. The very state that people like us complain about. If you can be aware that it's you looking for life, or that life is actually doing the looking, I don't know what to say. It's almost, I can feel, it's like somebody opened up the back of my head. I hate to get into this kind of poetic seriousness, but it's as though life, that is the entire universe, is behind me. And it's like I sit down finally. It's like life was trying to watch its own parade and find at least somebody somewhere. You know, I opened up like a trap door in my head, opened it, and now I can see. So I know it's life back there looking through my head which was what the opening story was, the guy's dream that he wanted to analyze, that he felt as though he dreamed that a dragon had swallowed him whole. Remember, swallowed him whole, and from that position within, remember, just imagine, that a big dragon had swallowed you, and now you are down in his stomach somewhere, just in him, and he swallowed you whole, but you're still alive. Down in the deep, dark bowels of the dragon, how else could you see? Assuming you could see it all, if you could see, you would see through his eyes some way. You would hear through his ears. You would feel through him touching. 
And the analyzation that the mystic gave the man was, well, the dream is, what that dream represents is man's condition. The mystic didn't go ahead and point out that the dragon represented from his view the universe, all of reality, but he said that the dream represents man's ordinary circumstance. And the dreamer then asked specifically, he said, but yeah, but, okay, but what does it mean that I saw through the dragon's eyes and I heard through the dragon's ears? And the mystic said, that my interpretation of that is, it shows someone who understood the circumstance in which man lives. That you dreamed of the circumstance, and then by you dreaming that you were looking through the dragon's eyes and listening through the dragon's ears, you then, in your dream, woke up to the reality of man's circumstance. What he was saying is, that's the only way that you do hear. That's the only way that you do see, is through the dragon's eyes and ears. It's life doing it. Life is looking. Life is listening. The only difference between being awake and being asleep is being aware of that. And knowing the answer to the question, do men exercise some control over their life or not? Always remembering that there is no answer. Well, I know there are two answers that come to mind. But what you don't understand, they're both cover words for... I did that because I don't know how to make the sound of stupidity. <coughs> Am I in tune? That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.